You're listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, conversations on the history of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by HistoryHub.ie and UCD School of History. We're speaking today with Professor Pedro Cardim. Professor Cardim is Associate Professor at the Faculty of Social and Human Sciences and Researcher and Board Member at the Portuguese Centre for Global History, or SHAM, at the Universidade Nova de Lisboa, or New University of Lisbon. His work focuses on the political and administrative history of Portugal between the 16th and 18th centuries, with particular emphasis on the political status of Portuguese territories, territorial expansion in the 16th and 17th centuries in Europe and overseas, political administrative communication under the authority of the Portuguese crown, and comparisons between Portuguese and Spanish colonisation in America. He is author and editor of a number of works, including Portugal Unido e Separado, published in 2014, Dom Afonso VI, co-authored with Angela Barreto Xavier, published in 2006, and Polycentric Monarchies, co-edited with Tamar Herzog, José Javier Ruiz Ibáñez, and Gaetano Sabatini, published in 2012. From 2012 to 2016, he was coordinator of the research project Bahia 1619, Salvador de Bahia, American, European and African foraging of a colonial capital city, funded by Marie Curie Actions, European Commission, under the International Research Staff Exchange Scheme. Professor Cardim, Pedro, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thank you for doing this. So today, Pedro, we're discussing the interaction between Portugal and the Spanish monarchy during the early modern period. And we're concentrating on two coexisting processes. Um, on the one hand, the differentiation between the various political formations within the Iberian Peninsula, and on the other, the persistence and even strengthening of an ancient sense of belonging to Hispania. Um, so throughout the early modern period, Portugal and Spain underwent many profound changes, both at the political, religious, economic and social level. They dramatically expanded their political horizons and became the heads of two global empires. And additionally, both Spain and Portugal developed their own political and administrative apparatuses, uh, as well as their own identity markers, such as religion, language, literature, and so on. But in parallel, the exchange between all parts of the Iberian Peninsula remained very intense. And the same can be said about the interaction between uh, Spaniards and Portuguese. And after the incorporation of Portugal into the Spanish monarchy, this interaction became even more intense, generating contradictory reactions, uh, stronger sentiments of belonging to the Hispanic world, and increasing fear of loss of Portuguese identity, uh, which would persist until the end of Iberian Union in 1640. But before we talk about this, um, what do we mean, or what do scholars mean when they talk about Hispania to refer to the Iberian Peninsula? Well, um, Hispania is um, the, the, the old name given by the Romans uh, at the time of the Roman Empire to the ensemble of territories that are part of the Iberian Peninsula. And uh, this was the period that, um, that um, when, when the Iberian Peninsula was under the same ruler, the Roman uh, uh, authorities. And um, this was a period that left a, a very strong um, 
memory in in the way the def, the the several Christian kingdoms in the Iberian Peninsula developed throughout the Middle Ages and also the early modern period. That is to say, um, in spite of the fact that the Iberian Peninsula no longer was united uh, under the same ruler throughout the Middle Ages and also the early modern period, these several uh, uh, Iberian uh, kings often uh, express a kind of a nostalgia about uh, Hispania and the time when Iberia was uh, under one sole ruler. So Hispania referred first to the, the time uh, of the Roman Empire when Iberia was was a united polity, but it also referred to something else, like uh, the sense of being part of a of a, of a place, of an ensemble with very similar features in cultural, legal, linguistic, uh, uh, religious terms. So Hispania also expressed this sense of uh, being part of a, a common ensemble. Uh, but as you correctly said, um, it's um, very frequently coexisted with a, a, a ever stronger sense of specificity. Each one of the polities inside Iberia uh, developed its uh, specific character in terms of language, in terms of culture, in terms of uh, legal apparatus, and and um, but apparently that was not incompatible with uh, that persistent sense of of, of belonging to Hispania. So it can be said that um, Hispania was um, was uh, uh, a notion of belonging to an ensemble, but uh, not in an exclusive way. So it allowed the persistence of uh, and even the development of uh, specificities inside each one of the Christian kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula. And um, this notion of Hispania then, and we know the name Hispania was given by the Romans, and it's an idea that was perpetrated by various rulers and so on. But um, was it an identity that was just solely imposed from above or from the outside? Or is there a sense that people living in the Iberian Peninsula began to see themselves organically bound by a common heritage in spite of their divergent languages and cultures? Yeah, it's uh, difficult to say because we don't have access to what ordinary people or people from the so-called lower groups thought about this. So what we have today is basically sources that uh, give us information about the elites and the literate, literate groups of these several Iberian polities thought about this topic. And what we can say for sure is that they often express this sense of being part of Hispania. Uh, of course, this statement could mean very different things depending on uh, your standpoint. If you if you get people from Portugal talking about this, this has a specific meaning. But if you compare it to what is going on in Catalonia or in Castile or in Valencia or in Navarre, that could uh, mean a completely different thing. But uh, uh, the, 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 the point that uh, they all have in common is that they often express this belonging to Hispania. Uh, and uh, uh, but but as I said, it's basically something that uh, we know from sources produced by by elites. So people uh, associated to the universities or uh, courtly life or uh, magistrates, not the ordinary people. 
Um, we can, uh, in any case, um, imagine that it wouldn't be difficult for uh, what I just termed as ordinary people to think about the common ensemble, uh, uh, taking into account that people circulated a lot. If you if you look at the history of the medieval and early modern Iberia, what you see inside the Iberian Peninsula is a lot of uh, people circulating, people of, of, of all origins and 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 backgrounds circulating and uh, apparently adapting very very easily to the different places where they decide to settle down you have portuguese in different parts of the peninsula you have aragonese circulating you have catalans also circulating castilians of course also circulating and the fact that most of the languages they spoke were kind of a similar also helped to to to, to, to give, uh, to strengthen this notion of, uh, of uh, a common belonging. But again, let me stress that this process coexisted sometimes in a rather tense way with a growing sense of belonging to a specific political unit inside the Iberian Peninsula. So I'm not saying, well, everybody was, was uh, perfectly happy with that situation of being part of uh, Hispania, of a common uh, polity, no, uh, uh, these expressions of, of belonging to Hispania coexisted frequently in a tense way with expressions of uh, xenophobia and also hostility regarding your neighbors, uh, for instance, between Portuguese and Castilians or between Catalans and Castilians. So um it's it's a complex picture of what you have uh in the Iberian peninsula perhaps not so different from uh the situation in in between uh Scotland and England or i don't know Ireland it's perhaps another uh, issue but uh, uh from what i've read there are similarities uh between the relationship between Scotland and England and uh what was going on in the Iberian peninsula between these different uh polities and speaking of specific polities, um, at what point did Portugal actually emerge as a separate and distinct kingdom? Mm -hmm. Portugal was was um, was established as a separate king during the, the 12th century, and it resulted from a secession movement from the whole kingdom of Leon and Castile, Leon above all. So uh, Portugal, it can be said, its 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 uh, its origins are. Leonese uh, Castilian. So uh, Portugal used to be a territory ruled by the King of Leon. Uh, and then at a certain point, the uh, a section of the Portuguese nobility decided to, 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 to separate, to split from the Kingdom of, of Leon and, and establish an independent kingdom. Of course, it was a complicated process. There was war uh, and also uh, war not just with 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 uh, the king of Leon, but also with the Muslims uh, who were controlling most of the of the Iberian territory during that period. So when when Portugal was established as an independent kingdom, uh, the new this newly independent uh, polity had to fight in two different uh, front lines uh, against the king of Leon, who was not willing to grant independence to the Portuguese and uh, simultaneously against the Muslim rulers who were controlling a substantial part of the Iberian Peninsula. So uh, these two elements uh, uh, being uh, 
a section of the whole kingdom of Leon and also the fighting against the Muslims. They, these are uh, aspects that uh, deeply shaped the way Portuguese history and collective memory developed in the, in the centuries that followed because all these two uh, topics were constantly recollected and uh, they, they, they were very frequently used for political purposes, in particular during the early modern period. Okay. Can you maybe tell us briefly about some of the common values, uh, cultures, norms, and so on, that bound the Spanish and the Portuguese together under this idea of Hispania up to the early years of the 15th century? Yeah, apart from, from the, 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 the common heritage, the, the sense of, of, of having this past, prestigious past link to the Roman Empire and being part of the Hispania province, um, cultural similarity. I mean, it's 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 obvious uh, that uh, uh, there there are many uh, similarities in cultural terms, in linguistic terms between the Portuguese, between the Castilians, between the the Aragonese. So uh, uh, this this cultural similarity, of course, was was one of the aspects more often um, uh, underlined by people talking about. Uh, this common uh, uh, basis of Iberia. Um, a similar past, I think it's also a topic that must be stressed, the fact that all the, the Christian polities of the uh, Iberian Peninsula were born out of the fighting against the, the, the Muslim rulers who control the peninsula, the so-called Reconquista uh, process, uh, with the the, the so to say, reconquest of the Iberian lands to the Muslims. All uh, Iberian polities were born out of this process. Uh, in one way or the other, they, uh, at their origins, the fighting against the Muslims is always there. So this, this aspect really played a very important role in giving a sense of, uh, well, we have a common past. We, 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 we were born out of the, this very important fighting uh, very important of course from the point of view of the of the Christians of that period um, they regarded the Muslims as their major enemy and so the feeling of fighting together the 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 the, the enemy their their what they considered their enemy number one was was also a powerful element that united uh, different peoples from from Iberia and it's a fact because if you take a close look at the at the armies that fought the Muslims, they were they were comprised of people coming from different parts of the peninsula, uh, irrespective of the fact that they were under the orders of the King of Portugal or the King of Castile or the King of Aragon. So it's uh, really a situation of a very intense collaboration uh, in the fighting against the, the Muslims. In parallel to this, uh, as I said before, the circulation of people. Uh, from different parts of peninsula, the peninsula also played a role, of course, uh, uh, and it's and this is significant because it's very spontaneous. I mean, people circulated uh, uh, a lot, and uh, it's not it was not exactly something that had to do with orders like coming from the court or from royal authorities. People circulated for doing trade, for studying in a university. Uh, like Salamanca or Alcalá de Henares or Coimbra, um, 
magistrates and juries communicated a lot and shared their knowledge. Uh, Castilian law also played an important role here because Castilian law developed uh, more precociously than the legal apparatus of the other kingdoms. And so Castilian law was often employed in Portugal or in Aragon or in Catalonia or Valencia. So, um, and uh, uh, also political institutions. I mean, these are, we are dealing with uh, a set of polities that were very closely uh, tied by different cultural ties. Um, and, and their elites were constantly uh, looking at each other. So we're talking of a, a section of the Western Europe where uh, each polity is looking very closely to what, what is going on in, 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 in domestic politics of, of their neighbors. So it's not a surprise to see that a lot of uh, the same institutions are they, they are developed more or less by the same time in different parts of Iberia, of course, with adaptations so to local conditions, no doubt about it. But you, you, what you also see is uh, a, a striking similarity in terms of political apparatus and uh, legal framework. And uh, so all these aspects really contributed to um, to make this sense of belonging to a common ensemble uh, uh, a very strong one, but not necessarily uh, uh, incompatible, and that, let me stress this point, with a growing sense of specificity. So it's a kind of a, a strange situation where, in which um, specificity and integration kind of uh, uh, coexisted. Royal intermarriage seems to have been a particularly important aspect of relations between the Portuguese, Castilian and Aragonese kingdoms. Uh, for example, uh, Afonso V of Portugal married the daughter of the Castilian king, Enrique IV, uh, who was Juana la Beltraneja, and promptly declared both of them as king and queen of Castile, Leon and Portugal, which led to the War of the Castilian Succession in 1475. Then at the end of the 15th century, Manuel of Portugal hoped to eventually unite the Portuguese and Spanish crowns under Portuguese rule, and married Isabella of Aragon and then later Maria of Aragon, both of whom were daughters of Isabel and Ferdinand, the, the Catholic monarchs, the Spanish monarchs. Now, this obviously didn't work out as Manuel had planned. Um, and the examples I gave are just two examples out of many. Um, can you maybe talk briefly about the importance of intermarriage between the kingdoms in the early modern period? Yeah, intermarriage was, uh, as you've just said, a very frequent uh, practice among not just kingdoms and royal houses, but also the nobility as a whole. I mean, if you if you look at the beginnings of the Kingdom of Portugal as an independent kingdom, what you see is that the, 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 the higher nobility is con constantly establishing marriage alliances with the nobilities of the of the neighboring uh, kingdoms and territories like Galicia, Castile, uh, Aragon, Valencia. So, um, and this was, this was a, a very spontaneous uh, process. From time to time, royal authorities tried to interfere and direct these, uh, these um, intermarriages to a certain territory or prevent a certain section of the nobility to establish these alliances uh, uh, with, with a certain territory. But in general terms, it can be said that this was a, a, 
a very uh, common and frequent practice, uh, in particular uh, among the the, the the nobilities of the different uh, Iberian polities. And uh, uh, the, the end result of this process was um, the formation of noble groups with a very complex um, um, national identity. And I, I put national between uh, brackets because, uh, as you know, the 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 concept of uh, nation and national and national identity for the period that we are dealing with here is is, is a kind of a complicated uh, issue. So. Uh, my, my point is that um, the end result of this um, persistent practice of uh, intermarriages between abilities coming from different polities ended up generating an ability that was complex in terms of, uh, of its uh, political allegiance. Because uh, you can say, well, this Portuguese noble, the fact that he is from Portugal means that his main political allegiance is to his king, the king of Portugal. Not necessarily so, because uh, the branches of this of, of some of these noble houses were so closely connected with the nobility of the neighboring polities that uh, sometimes their uh, political options ended up very very different and 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 completely opposite to uh, the king who ruled uh, in the territory where uh, most of uh, the estates of these noble laws were located. So it's a, it's a, complica a complicated um, situation. Once again, a complicated, a complex identity, uh, an ability with what I termed, uh, tentatively termed, uh, multiple national allegiances. Um, and this uh, persisted until, I would say, the mid-17th century. And we, so we are talking of a of a process, a long-term process from the early Middle Ages, from the the the, the moments uh, when uh, Portugal was established as an independent kingdom until the late uh, 17th century. And as I said, uh, it was very spontaneous. So it was not really something uh, directed from the top, from royal authorities saying, "Let's establish uh, alliances with with." Uh, with uh, uh, noble houses from neighboring countries. No, it was very spontaneous. From time to time, royal authorities tried to interfere in this process, in these practices, but in general terms, it can be said that it was it was uh, something that was part of the noble hetos and uh, and the way the main, uh, the major noble houses of Portugal, Castile and Aragon regarded their neighbors and, uh, and uh, the potential Houses with which they could establish some kind of uh, alliances, alliance through marriage. Is there any sense, aside from maybe Manuel, uh, that rulers, be it on the Castilian or Aragonese side or on the Portuguese side, is there any sense that uh, any of them saw royal intermarriage as, as an attempt to maintain or reclaim this ancient sense of Hispania? Um. Yeah, to a certain extent, I think uh, you are right. Uh, but we, we should also add to what you just said, the fact that all um, Christian rulers uh, in, in Iberia, when they were establishing these intermarriages, uh, intermarriage ties, they were not just um, 
putting in practice something that was uh, part of his uh, noble ethos, but also uh, they were playing like politics. Uh, they were establishing these this, uh, family ties in order to be able to, uh, in the near future, uh, play a role in case of a succession crisis in one of the neighboring polities. So, for instance, Portuguese kings often uh, paid a, a very close attention to what was going on in their neighboring kingdoms so that they could take advantage of some succession crisis and establish and, and incorporate uh, one of the neighboring territories uh, uh, like Castile or Aragon. And the same applies to Aragon and Castile. So uh, intermarriage allowed, um, allowed some kings to uh, play a very uh, proactive role in terms of, of trying to take possession of uh, a neighboring territory uh, based on the claims of that that they are married to a member of the of the royal family of that territory, and Portugal in this respect I think played a, a really interesting role. And uh, um, traditional historians uh, often say that Portugal at a certain point no, was no longer interested in playing an active role in Iberian politics, but uh, the the more recent research has demonstrated that. Portuguese kings, uh, contrary to this traditional idea, they were very interested uh, in, in, in certain moments of the late medieval period and early modern period. They were extremely interested in the possibility of uh, joining forces with Castilians and, for instance, in, uh, uh, establish a, an Iberian Union based in Portugal, not in Castile. Manuel, the, the king that you've mentioned, is a very clear illustration of what I've just said. Manuel was uh, certainly uh, interested in establishing a, an Iberian Union, but one that was more based on Portugal as a central piece of that union and not based on the centrality of Castile. But uh, his plans did not succeed, and, and, and so uh, Portugal and Castile and Aragon remained uh, separated. And um, how did the, the dawn of the age of exploration affect relations between Iberian kingdoms in the 15th century, when Portugal clearly took the lead? It did affect uh, in many ways. Um, from the point of view of Portugal, uh, the expansion was a way to compensate the, the fact that Portugal was no longer uh, in a position to continue fighting and conquering lands to the Muslims in the Iberian Peninsula. So at a time when conquering new territories and incorporating new territories was seen as one of the main objectives of governance, uh, the Portuguese kings, in fact, lacked that possibility uh, inside the Iberian Peninsula. So incursions in uh, North Africa and also in the in the northern Atlantic and then southwards in the Atlantic across uh, along the, the, the West African coast must be seen as uh, in part as a way of uh, Portugal asserting its position in the Iberian politics and like saying uh, we can be a, a, a political power uh, and we can lead an expansion process just like the Castilians or the Aragonese are doing in uh, other parts of the Iberian Peninsula. So my perception is that uh, 
for Portugal um, leading that um, expansion in the Atlantic and also uh, in uh, uh, Northern Africa was a way of, uh, of, 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 of asserting its position inside the Iberian politics. And uh, as a matter of fact, um, the circumstance that Portugal became the head, the head of, a, of a, a huge empire certainly played a role in terms of balance of power between Portugal and Castile, uh, because uh, it gave Portugal a status that uh, it, uh, Portugal would certainly lack in case it didn't have a, 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 an overseas uh, empire. So uh, expansion was was very important, I would say, mostly for Portugal in these early stages of the age of the exploration. Um, as you said, and uh, Castile uh, just got involved in this process later, later on in, in the last quarter of the of the 15th century. So at the time when the Portuguese had already established the first settlements in Madeira and the, and the Azores, and also at the time when the Portuguese had already several fortresses in, in nowadays Morocco. So um, it is clear that that uh, at that stage, Portugal was already a lot more uh, involved in this expansion. And, and the fact that Castile um, starts playing an important role also, in particular from the moment when Columbus does his uh, very famous expedition, this uh, clearly showed that from that moment on, Castile and Portugal would be competitors in the exploration. And so um, it had a kind of a new dimension to the already existing competition or emulation between Castilians and, and the Portuguese. Uh, parallel to this competition or emulation inside Iberian politics now, the overseas areas would also be the stage for this uh, Portuguese-Spanish competition. And that began clearly in the last quarter of the 15th century. I alluded briefly at the beginning of this uh, to the creation of distinct political and administrative apparatuses in the various kingdoms. And the Portuguese discoveries clearly had a profound impact on the Portuguese kingdom. Can you talk about the political and administrative apparatuses that they created in response to these discoveries? Yeah, the Portuguese, uh, when they, they, they began getting involved in more systematic incursions in the Atlantic, they they rapidly felt the need to develop new institutions. Uh, uh, and so from the mid 15th, uh, 15th century onwards, what you see is uh, the creation, uh, the establishment, mostly in Lisbon, but also in some coast, coastal cities like Lagos and other, and other cities uh, in, in different parts of, of, of Portugal you see the establishment of a series of new institutions uh, specifically oriented to regulating the incursions, the trade, and also the navigation that the Portuguese were, were uh, engaged in, uh, in, in in such a frequent way. So institutions like the House of Guinea or the House of the Slaves or the House of India, these are institutions very precociously established, so I'm talking in chronological terms of the second half of the uh, 15th century and late 15th century, which means that um, 
Portugal ended up the first uh, Western European polity to create uh, uh, bodies of government or uh, administration specifically uh, devoted to overseas affairs. It's true that the, the, the institutions that I've mentioned, like the House of Guinea or the House of the Slaves or the House of the Indian they, of, of India, they were mostly concerned with um, navigation and trade and, and fiscal issues. It's, we cannot see them as uh, bodies of government. Uh, they were instead places where authorities tried to establish some kind of regulation uh, regarding navigation, trade, trade of uh, all kinds of uh, commodities and also the terrible trade of uh, enslaved people from sub-Saharan Africa that began precisely in this moment and the, the Portuguese as this widely known pioneer this process. So that's why the Portuguese established in Lisbon the, the so-called House of the Slaves. Uh, so this is a, 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 indeed a very precautious institutional framework, but I would say that it was more oriented to regulate trade and fiscal issues and not so much the government of these uh, overseas lands uh, which, mm, as a matter of fact, they, they, they were not really, at that time, conquered by the Portuguese. Uh, it was only from the early uh, years of the 16th century onwards that the Portuguese started to conquer territories, new lands. And so that was a time when government became uh, really a priority. Uh, until that moment, and uh, with the exception of a few fortresses in, in Northern Africa, and the islands and the colonization of, of, the, or, uh, of the islands of Madeira and the Azores, uh, governing uh, colonial territories was not an issue for, for, for the Portuguese authorities. It only began from the early uh, 16th century onwards, just like, like, like in Spain. Yeah, and of course the Spanish had their own discovery in America in 1492. Um, is it fair to say that discovery of America fundamentally changed relations between the kingdoms? Uh, it did, it did. Um, perhaps not fundamentally, but uh, it did uh, generate a very a, a very strong sense of competition, uh, which already existed before. Uh, do bear in mind that uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish, they fought very intensely in the Canary Islands uh, uh, well before uh, Columbus expedition. So the competition was already there, but now that Columbus and uh, the Royal House of Castile like like uh, promoted so many expeditions uh, following the, the one uh, in 1492, clearly indicated that uh, from that moment on, the competition in the Atlantic between Portuguese and Spanish would be a lot more intense. Um, the Spanish authorities also um, created their own institutions of administration of overseas affairs. Uh, part of them inspired in the Portuguese model. Some historians say that uh, the, the famous Casa de la Contratación in Seville is inspired in its uh, Portuguese counterpart, the House of India in Lisbon. Um, but um, but uh, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's clear that the fact that the Spaniards, they did conquer huge territories and controlled huge, uh, enormous amounts of native peoples 
sooner than the Portuguese. So the issue of governing colonial territories in, this, in the case of Spain was, uh, was, was, was uh, the, the need to develop institutions to cope with, with the, these challenges was felt earlier in the case of Spain uh, than in, in Portugal. And, and I'm thinking about the Americas and, and the conquest of, of Spanish America. So speaking of the Casa de la Contratación, uh, or the House of Trade. Um, in 1503, this, the, the Casa, the Casa de la Contratación was founded in Seville to oversee all matters relating to Spanish discoveries in America. Um, and you talked about the influence of Portugal on, on the Casa. To what extent was the Casa de la Contratación in Spain founded upon the model of the Casa de India in Portugal? Um, how did their respective functions differ? Um, it's, it's clear that um, the Casa de la Contratación in Seville, which was, uh, as I said, uh, founded in, in 1503, um, was based on uh, its Portuguese counterparts, the Casa de Guinea, the House of Guinea, and also the House of India. And all these institutions that were part of the Portuguese uh, uh, institutional apparatus, they were developed in order to cope with the challenges posed by the overseas expansion. Their tasks were mostly overseeing trade and uh, fiscal issues and also, yeah, basically mercantile issues and not so much uh, political issues. Although uh, in political terms, uh, these institutions became more and more relevant because they became places where uh, an increasing amount of information about uh, African, American, and Asian lands became being collected, accumulated, and organized, uh, creating a kind of one of the first uh, European colonial archives. Uh, so with lots of information relevant for coping with uh, these uh, peoples from the Americas, from Africa, from Sub-Saharan Africa, mostly in Asia, with, with whom the Portuguese were interacting and fighting. So um, the Casa de la Contratación, I think, uh, is, 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 is similar in this respect because it all also began dealing mostly with uh, mercantile affairs. And uh, just like I said, for the Isles of India in Portugal, the Casa de la Contratación also um, started playing the role of a kind of a colonial archive in the sense that uh, it became a place where uh, where more and more information, some of it uh, very sensitive information about the overseas lands began being accumulated. And um, I think um, in the decades uh, that followed throughout the, the, the 16th century, um, the Casa de la Contratación ended up uh, becoming um, more diversified in, term, in terms of its scope than the Isles of India. Um, it began incorporating tasks uh, more related with uh, the political dimension of the Spanish expansion, and its uh, archive uh, became really sensitive for Spanish authorities. As you know, at a certain point, uh, Spanish authorities uh, uh, issued very strict uh, regulation in terms of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of collecting information and showing the information uh, that was inside the Casa de la Contratación. 
in order to prevent uh, uh, other European competitors who have access to that very sensitive information. Um, it is possible that the House of India, the Portuguese House of India, also play that role. And I say possible because we lack the information. Uh, it's uh, one of the biggest problems with which the, the, the Portuguese historians have to cope with, uh, those who are working on the 16th century, is the fact that the archive of the House of India uh, almost disappeared. So it's, uh, it's a key institution uh, but in spite of that, we know very little about it. The, the, the information we have about its uh, history throughout the 16th century is, is not so significant. And in particular, when compared with what we know about the Casa de la Contratación, it's, 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 it's a striking difference. So it's a shame. But, uh, but we know we don't know too much about the House of, of, of India, but it was definitely very, very... Uh, uh, very important. And for listeners who are wondering why uh, we're lacking so much material on Portuguese archives, uh, 1755 was the the famous earthquake uh, in Lisbon, which caused mass destruction of the city and destroyed a huge amount of archival material in the same year. Isn't that correct? Yes. So one of the reasons why uh, we lost the the documentation that would be uh, key to, to to know, to learn more about the history of these and other institutions of the Portuguese central apparatus is precisely the destruction caused by, by the big earthquake. So um, we know very little about the House uh, of India and uh, we don't have too much information about any, uh, uh, several other very important bodies of central government in Portugal because of the destruction uh, of the earthquake in uh, 1755. Yeah, uh, an earthquake so large that it caused a tidal wave that was felt as far away as uh, Seville. Yeah, a big, a big tsunami. And just to put it into perspective, the amount of material that may have been lost, um, even though a significant proportion went missing, because of the fire that was created. In the Torre de Tombo today alone, there is an, I think it's estimated, if the files were laid end to end, it would reach 75 kilometers of material. So we can't even imagine the amount that was lost. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And and uh, one thing I would add to what you've just said is the fact that um, Todo Tombo, the, main, the major uh, state archives in Portugal, still has huge collections that need to be classified and uh, organized and uh, we don't have enough knowledge of uh, 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 huge amounts of documentation. So it's possible that uh, when uh, archivists uh, um, start working on these sections of the archives that are not yet uh, uh, organized or uh, when they produce the first inventories of these sections of the archives, it's possible that we will find um, some documentation produced during the 16th century by these House of India. So there is some expectation about it, of course. And, and, uh, and uh, so part of the reason for this lack of information has to do with this, the, the destruction caused by the big earthquake. But another part of the reason has to do with uh, the, the, the condition of some of the Portuguese archives that need, some of them really 
need more intensive work uh, by uh, archivists and also historians in order to, to, to produce good inventories of this documentation. This work is being being carried out, but uh, there's still a long way to do, to go. Huh? Um, is there any sense, actually, that uh, much of the destruction of documents is all due to systematic destruction by officials who don't want secret information being disseminated? For example, in Spain, there was regular destruction of maps to prevent it falling into foreign hands. Yeah, there were there were some initiatives of uh, destroying uh, uh, sensitive documents, maps, or reports, or also uh, books that provided a lot of information about uh, Portuguese overseas lands, and that provided too much information from the point of view of the authorities. And so, at a certain point, there are some books that were printed, but right after that, authorities say. Well, we shouldn't allow these books to be circulating because they they provide very too much detailed uh, information about uh, Portuguese America, for instance. Yeah, I believe uh, Esmeralda de Cito Orbis was one of these, wasn't it, that book? For instance, yeah, that's that's one example. And But you have other examples uh, in later periods, for instance, in 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 the mid-17th century or as late as the early... 18th century, for instance, uh, the first accounts of the areas of Brazil where the bulk of the gold was discovered, these accounts, some of these accounts were first published, but right after that, authorities got so worried with with the fact that other uh, European rivals could have access to this information that they just decided to to, to forbid these books to, to circulate, and they, they, they just, they just uh, called them back. And... Uh, and so it's 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 clear that uh, Portuguese authorities, just like their Spanish counterparts, they were uh, constantly worried about the amount of information circulating, and they tried to prevent sensitive information from uh, going to the ends of their northern European rivals. Yeah, yeah, it was already a problem in the early 16th century between Portugal and Spain, but then when the French the the French, the English, and then the Dutch came into the picture. It became even much more complicated, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, clearly. And uh, as we learn more and more about the French and the English incursions in the Atlantic during the 16th century, it's clear that uh, the, the the threat was there. And so Portuguese authorities were perfectly aware that they should pay uh, a lot of attention to to this issue of of uh, information. Yeah, yeah. There is actually some evidence of Portuguese and Spanish cooperation towards the end of the 16th century yeah. in preventing dissemination yeah. information, including exactly. execution of spies, <laughs> summary, yeah, summary exactly. execution. Yeah. Exactly. And sharing of information as well, because uh, as, you, as you said before, uh, in the initial stages of the expansion, it's clear that there is some rivalry and competition. But at a certain point in the 16th century already, I would say, during the first half of the 16th century, you, what you see is that uh, both Iberian polities, the, the Spanish and the Portuguese, they, they, they come to the conclusion that their main threat is in Northern Europe, not in the Iberian Peninsula, in terms of overseas domination, you know. So what you, what you end up seeing is a, is a change of, 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 of a paradigm in terms of relationship between Portuguese and Spanish uh, authorities and they start to cooperate, they start to share information, 
Uh, and uh, of course, there is some suspicion all the time, some emulation, some competition, some rivalry. But uh, at a certain point, it's clear that the, the big threat is not in the Iberian Peninsula, but instead uh, uh, northwards in Europe. So turning back to the, the beginning of the 16th century, just uh, briefly, um, in 1500, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabel, uh, Juana, uh, she gave birth to a son by Philip I of the House of Habsburg. And this son, Charles, would in 1517 inherit the Castilian and Aragonese crowns, uh, Castile's New World possessions in America, as well as significant areas of Habsburg Europe. And in addition to this, he was crowned as Holy Roman Emperor in 1519, uh, consolidating an extraordinary amount of power under his rule. How significant was it for the Portuguese that they were now dealing not just with a Spanish king, but with a Habsburg and a Holy Roman Emperor? Um, how detrimental was this to their interests? It was uh, a, a really significant event, a really significant change. Portugal, until recently, was uh, a, a small country, a small kingdom in a kind of a peripheral uh, area of Europe. So um, Portugal was uh, clearly not uh, a, a major stakeholder in, in, in European politics. But from the time Portugal began uh, its expansion process and occupying some lands in the Atlantic and also uh, uh, and, and also conquering some spots of land in, in northern Africa. This, I think, had an effect in, in the Portuguese status vis-à-vis uh, -vis the other uh, European rulers, in the sense that Portugal and the Portuguese kings could, uh, from that moment on, present themselves as rulers as something else larger than just a tiny Portuguese peninsular territory. And, of course, at a time when reputation and... Uh, and honor was so important in terms of politics. The fact that the Portuguese king, kings were able to, to, to produce propaganda that insisted a lot on its overseas dominions was key for a, a kind of a Portuguese self-fashioning, you know. Uh, like Portugal was able to play a major role and, and, and talk in more equal terms with uh, the major Western European kingdoms because of the expansion. When uh, Charles the, the Charles of Habsburg, later on Charles V Emperor, uh, got to the Iberian Peninsula, of course, this was a major change for the whole uh, Iberian Peninsula, not just for Aragon and Castile, but also for Portugal, because um, it gave the Portuguese the opportunity to interact in a, in a, in a lot more direct way with uh, one of the major rulers of Europe of that time. And uh, at the moment when Portugal was already presenting itself in European courts as a major uh, imperial uh, imperial polity. So that's the time when the languages of empire start being incorporated by the Portuguese propaganda. And, and so what you see is that the, the several embassies promoted by the Portuguese kings, Manuel and, and also John III, they convey an image of, uh, of Portugal as a kind of uh, imperial kingdom, as a kingdom that was 
very small in Europe, but uh, uh, was uh, able to uh, conquer and control lands scattered uh, across the globe. And this was key for Portugal, as I said, uh, to, to, to present itself as a, as a, as a uh, not really a superpower, but uh, as, a, as a polity that had the ambition to become a sort of a imperial polity, uh, an empire, a Portuguese empire. Although the title was never officially employed by the, the Portuguese kings, it's clear that imperial ideologies and imperial language had a, a very powerful influence uh, during this period uh, in, in Portugal. And the fact that uh, Portuguese officials started to interact with, with, uh, uh, with representatives of Charles V also played a role because that, uh, that also contributed to make uh, imperial uh, languages and imperial ideologies uh, much closer to the Portuguese context. So um, it made uh, awareness of empire a lot more present in Portugal than before. Um, but at the same time, it also clearly, uh, at least in the initial moments of, of Charles V's uh, reign in, in, in Spain, uh, it also contributed to intensify competition. And uh, as you know, uh, the competition was uh, strongest in East Asia, in the area of the so-called Spice Islands, the, the Molucca archipelago. Uh, but interestingly enough, um, simultaneously to that competition, there was a, 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 a persistent uh, cooperation between the two polities. For instance, it was under Charles V that many Portuguese collaborated with Spanish armies in uh, fighting in Northern Africa against the Muslims. Um, the defense of uh, the naval defense of the Western Mediterranean was a kind of a joint task between the Spanish and the Portuguese Navy. And uh, perhaps even more importantly, intermarriage continued. Uh, Charles V married to Isabella of Portugal. So, and, and, and John III of Portugal uh, married Catherine of Austria. So, um, as I said before, it's this, um, this um, uh, interesting and, 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 and perhaps uh, strange uh, coexistence between rivalry and, uh, and uh, uh, very close ties and, 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 and cooperation, rivalry and cooperation, I'd say it's, it's perhaps the, 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 these are the terms that best describe this, this uh, particular situation. Uh, speaking of rivalry and competition, and you alluded briefly to the Spice Islands, uh, in 1513, Portugal discovered the, the Spice Islands or the Imbalucas in Southeast Asia. Um, can you explain the importance of these islands for Portugal and for Portuguese-Spanish competition uh, from this part of the century? Yeah, these islands were uh, important as a part of the whole strategy adopted by the Portuguese in their expansion in Asia. As is widely known, the Portuguese uh, in Asia, they conquered some spots of land, some enclaves in, in the Indian subcontinent and also in, in several parts of the Western Indian Ocean. But when it comes to, to, to Southeast Asia, uh, the Portuguese, uh, apart from conquering 
the, the, the important city, uh, strategic city uh, of Malacca. They, they also um, managed to um, get involved in the very complex and dynamic pre-existing mercantile trade relations uh, in, in, in Asia, across the Indian Ocean and also Southeast Asia. So when they got to the Spice Islands, the so-called Spice Islands, so roughly nowadays Malaysia and Indonesia, uh, they, 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 they adopted the same strategy they had adopted in other parts of, of, uh, of uh, Asia. They kind of uh, adapted themselves to pre-existing conditions of trade, controlled a few spots, strategic spots uh, uh, in, 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 in the several uh, highlands of, of, of the Moluccas. But what the Portuguese basically did in Southeast Asia was to try to get involved in the pre-existing trading uh, routes, and uh, which were, as I said, very rich, complex and dynamic and very multi-ethnic, because although there was a kind of a Chinese dominance in this, in this uh, trade relations, we're talking of trade connecting peoples from all parts of uh, Asia and Southeast Asia. And so we are dealing with a really multi-ethnic uh, and very complex uh, uh, mercantile milieu. The Portuguese um, succeeded in adapting to this uh, atmosphere, multi-ethnic atmosphere of trade, and they 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 saw the Moluccas as uh, one more market to take advantage. Of course, some spices specific to that area were were very, very lucrative in European markets. Uh, but in addition to that, the Spice Islands were important because of their location. They were located very close to the area of East Asia, Asia where the demarcation between the Portuguese and the Spanish section of the globe was, 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 uh, was located. Um, do remind that in 1493, in the, in the town of Tordesillas in northern Spain, Portuguese and Spanish representatives agreed in establishing a kind of a global division between Spain and Portugal. The, the famous Treaty of Tordesillas, uh, cited in 1493-1494, and then implemented in the years that followed, uh, established a, a, a kind of a modus vivendi between the two Iberian polities. One part of the globe was exclusively for the Portuguese, and the other part of the globe was exclusively for the the, the, the Spaniards. And and the, the line that def, that established the, the demarcation when it comes to East Asia passed very near to the area where the Spice Islands are located. So that was a disputed area, uh, disputed between the Portuguese and the Spaniards, and that's why it became uh, an area of conflict, an area of contact between the two Iberian empires and also an area of conflict because uh, it represented access not just to the the extremely rich trade of spices of that part of Asia, but it also enabled enabled those who were involved in this trade to have access to other uh, other markets and the trade areas like East Asia. And I'm thinking of China and 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 Japan. So 
having a, a, a strong presence in the Moluccas was also key to be able then to expand trade connections to other very rich and dynamic areas of trade, the ones closest to China and to Japan. And of course, both the Portuguese and the Spaniards that that uh, uh, were collecting more and more information about this, and and that this is also another reason why the the spice islands were so strategic for both empires. We spoke about the Treaty of Tordesillas on a previous podcast with uh, Tamar Herzog, and as she pointed out, the treaty itself was problematic because there really was no way of knowing how to measure. Uh, longitude in the 16th century, either in the West or subsequently in the East. And the problem with the Spice Islands was that they could be on either side of demarcation line, depending on how you wanted to draw your charts. So this kind of allowed the Spanish to claim that they owned the Moluccas, that they fell just inside the demarcation, where the Portuguese contended that, no, actually, it falls just within our demarcation. And this kind of uh, set the tone for relations between the kingdoms for a number of years, up to 1529, didn't it? It did, it did. Um, and I, I think it's... And periodically thereafter as well. Yeah, also, because um, from the moment when the Spaniards established their first outposts in the Philippine Islands, uh, so we're talking about the second half of the 16th century, conflicts uh, between Portuguese and Spanish continued to take place in that part of the globe, uh, but also cooperation. So let me insist on this idea that Rivalry and cooperation is is uh, something that coexisted from from uh, in most of the period we are uh, analyzing here. But as you correctly said, the fact that it was so difficult to measure and to say uh, in a very accurate way, this is where the line of Tordesillas is located. Uh, they, they 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 both didn't have the means, the technological means to to do that. So. This is also one of the reasons why uh, this line was frequently a matter of dispute for both uh, Iberian polities. Yeah. So aside from the competition, the imperial competition in the Moluccas and in America between Portugal and Spain, how would you describe the state of relations between the kingdoms in the 16th century overall? I mean, they're obviously very complex, mm-hmm. but we can't, as you say, we can't just reduce them to... Uh, a relationship of competition, can we? No, we can't. Although competition was there, uh, always there, sometimes more intense, some other times less intense. Uh, going back to the spice silence, I think that after the Treaty of Saragossa, uh, 1529, um, things uh, became clear for uh, both, uh, for the authorities of, of both polities because uh, it was. Uh, clear by that time that the Americas would be the major stage for Spanish colonial expansion, whereas for Portugal, Asia was uh, a lot more central. So the fact that uh, uh, Spanish authorities concentrated most of their means and resources in conquering more lands and colonizing more lands across the Americas and the Caribbean made a a difference and, and played a role in making uh, relations in uh, East Asia and Southeast Asia less tense. Although conflicts continue to occur, but uh, not as intense in, as in these initial years of the 16th century. Um, 
But in parallel to to this uh, overseas uh, competition, the relations um, continue to be close. Um, And I would say that um, there were several factors to contribute to to the development of uh, ever uh, closer ties between Spain or the Spanish monarchy and Portugal. Well, as I already mentioned, uh, cultural similarities, uh, bilingualism. Uh, uh, do bear in mind that in Portugal, throughout the 16th century and 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 to a large extent also the 17th century, a lot of people could speak Spanish uh, fluently. So uh, the same does not apply to to the Castilians. Uh, but many Portuguese could speak, uh, read, and write in Castilian in, in a very fluent way. The, the 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 cooperation that I said between armies and naval forces of the two of the two polities continued and became even even stronger. Fighting against Muslim was a common cause that united and and gave a sense of uh, communion and belonging to the same party. Um, uh, and, uh, and another factor that so far I have not mentioned, the fighting against the Protestants also played a role, I think. Uh, uh, parallel to this very strong uh, obligation to fight the Muslims and the infidels in general, the fighting against the Protestants was also something that made the Portuguese and the Spanish uh, feel that they were part of the same world and uh, the same cause. Uh, not that the Protestants were so frequent in, in, in the Iberian Peninsula, they were not, but uh, the, the fact that Portugal, both Portugal and the Spanish monarchy joined uh, the kind of a Catholic bloc that fought the Protestants in Europe um, gave them a sense of moral superiority, a sense that they were in the right side of the fighting, that they were the ones who, in confessional terms, were correct. To remind that uh, from the Catholic standpoint in the 16th and 17th century, the Protestants were heretics and were completely mistaken about their faith. And so this sense of, of, of Catholicism being an element that in a very deep way defined what uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish identity, of course, also contributed to 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 develop this sense of being part of uh, of uh, of the same ensemble, uh, you know. So I think Catholicism and and religion, Catholic religions, which was of course a disputed matter. I'm not saying uh, uh, that everybody accepted Catholicism. We all know that Catholicism, even inside the Iberian Peninsula, and uh, in spite of the fact that there were no Protestants. Catholicism was a, 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 a disputed, highly disputed matter and uh, generated lots of uh, violence and forced conversions and persecution, the Inquisition and so forth and so on. But um, in terms of uh, religious and, so to say, national identity of the Iberians, uh, Catholicism was a powerful source of, uh, of, uh, of community, of um uh, feelings of belonging to the same community, to the same group, to the same party. So the 
the geographic proximity of Portugal and Spain, as well as their cultural and linguistic affinities, has always allowed for a significant degree of interchange, whether of information or of people or whatever. Um, was this interchange intensified by their respective imperial interests in the 16th century? It did. It did. Um, um, it did intensify because, as I said before, um, I think there was a permanent curiosity about what was going on in both sides of, of the border. You know, um, there were uh, the Spaniards and the Portuguese were closely watching each other and seeing what they were doing, for instance, in overseas affairs or in terms of development of the of uh, of the government apparatus in peninsular Portugal or peninsular Castile. So um, they 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 are uh, clo closely uh, watching each other. They imitate each other sometimes. They they get inspiration uh, from what their counterpart uh, uh, was doing. And uh, there, there's a lot of a sh sharing of experiences, uh, both in uh, in the peninsular context and also in uh, in uh, overseas territories, and of course, as I said before, the cooperation that was uh, more and more frequent uh, as we move forward in 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 the uh, 16th century, this also made easier to 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 see uh, what the Portuguese or the Spaniards were doing, for instance, regarding. The native peoples of uh, the Americas, or regarding the Sub-Saharan Africans, or regarding the Asians. So there is a lot of uh, a sharing of information, um, and uh, as I said, the circulation of people uh, also contributed to 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 interchange circulation, not just uh, inside the peninsula, but also in overseas lands. Uh, recent research has demonstrated that. The number of Portuguese participating in the, the initial stages of the conquest, the Spanish conquest of America, is impressive. So, if you take the major expeditions in the Caribbean, in the area of nowadays Panama, the so-called Castilla del Oro, if you take Cortes expeditions, if you take what was going on in the in in Peru, you constantly see Portuguese participating in, in the conquest, in the military operations. And uh, after that, you also see a lot of Portuguese migrating to uh, Spanish territories in the Americas. So the number of Portuguese living in Spanish America by the late 16th century is, is impressive. Uh, and, uh, and, and so this, uh, this um, circulation of people also contributed to closing the ties. This was not exactly something that the authorities were promoting. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, quite on the contrary, because uh, one of the things that was established in the, the, the Treaty of Two Desires, uh, and I suppose Tamara Tsog has, has, has mentioned that, was the fact that um, uh, uh, from that moment on, the territories due to be conquered and uh, and colonized by the Spaniards were exclusively for people uh, from Castile, uh, whereas in the Portuguese case, the territories conquered and colonized by the Portuguese in, in, in South America, in Sub-Saharan Africa, and in Asia would be 
only uh, for the Portuguese. So, in other words, only um, Portuguese vassals were allowed to settle down in Portuguese-controlled territories across Asia, Africa, and Brazil. And the same applies to Spanish America. This, this was the decision made not just in, in Tordesillas, but also made in the years that followed by the Spanish and the Portuguese authorities. Now, uh, in theory, therefore, the Spanish territories were close to other Iberian peoples. Uh, they were exclusively for uh, for the people from Castile, just like just like the English territories in North America throughout the 17th century were in theory exclusively for English subjects and not uh, open totally open to people from Scotland, for instance. So this kind of regime existed in the Iberian overseas territories. The Portuguese Empire was exclusively for people from Portugal, so vassals of the King of Portugal, whereas Spanish America uh, was exclusively for uh, Spanish uh, or Castilian vassals. Uh, in practical terms, these restrictions... And, sorry to interrupt, but uh, specifically Portuguese Catholics. Catholics, as also, of to, course. Yeah, but yeah, that, yeah. that's an important point, because from the late 15th century onwards, both the Spanish and the Portuguese authorities said that uh, they would not allow to have vassals of a different faith than Catholics. So uh, being or becoming Catholic be, uh, uh, was a condition to be vassal of the King of Spain or the King of Portugal. So, so this meant that um, someone who was not Catholic was not allowed to be uh, labeled and treated as a vassal of the King of Portugal. Also in juridical, juridical terms, one of the interesting outcomes of, the, of this is that, for instance, in, in, Af in, in Asia, in the Portuguese territories of Asia, when the Portuguese started to convert uh, more and more Asian people to Christianity, to Catholicism, frequently in a forceful way, these newly converted uh, Asians, uh, newly converted to Catholicism, began being regarded as vassals of the King of Portugal. So conversion uh, to Catholicism also had an impact in juridical terms, in the status of the persons. Um, so what I was saying is that um, the, uh, the fact that these restrictions were, were, were uh, established uh, making it, uh, uh, at least in theory, impossible for a Portuguese to settle down in Spanish America or for a Castilian to settle down in Goa, in, in the Portuguese uh, territory of Goa in Asia. Um, in practical terms, this was not enforced uh, in a very uh, strict way. So the main outcome of that was, as I said before, an increasing number of Portuguese settled down in Spanish America, and they were welcome there because they were skillful people, they had uh, many competences, they could perform different tasks, and uh, these new colonial societies needed people with some technical skills, and, and some of these Portuguese migrants, they, they did have these technical skills. So it's not a surprise that in places like 
Potosi, uh, Lima, Cartagena de Indias, Mexico, Mexico City, Veracruz, or Panama City. The number of Portuguese uh, living there during the late 16th century, early 17th century was impressive. The same can be said about Buenos Aires in, in the decades of 1620s or 1630s. So, uh, and, and uh, answering again to your question, I'm sorry, I'm just diverging a little bit. Uh, but uh, so close connections, uh, not just continued, but in a certain extent, they they also became stronger because of this circulation of, of, of people. And it must be said that there was clearly more Portuguese settling down in Spanish America than the other way around. So uh, you don't see many Spanish, many people from Spain migrating to Portuguese India or to Brazil. There are a few, but uh, nothing compared to the wave of migration had, uh, from Portugal heading towards uh, Spanish America. And the answer, the explanation for that is uh, economy. I mean, the economy of Spanish America from the mid 16th century onwards is booming. So there was a lot of work, a lot of uh, opportunities there. And this, of course, explains why so many Portuguese, instead of going to Brazil or Portuguese India, they, they headed towards Spanish America. Yeah, you do in fact see I see a very significant number of Portuguese in, as you mentioned, in places like Mexico, particularly, as you say, in what was to become Buenos Aires in South America, because the Portuguese had been there much longer. They've been there since about 1500 and they had been setting up trading posts and settling to some extent. So when the first colonies came across to Buenos Aires and the Rio de la Plata, or the River Plate, they needed Portuguese knowledge of the area, as well as basically things like translators to translate with natives uh -huh. and sailors and pilots who were familiar with the, the river itself. And you often see in, in, in some cases um, on ships sailing from Seville to the river plate, you can have crews that can be 40, even sometimes 50% Portuguese. And almost always the, the chief pilot is a Portuguese who has extensive knowledge of the area. It's true. And, and the, the fact that the Portuguese were so frequently like scattered, they, they dispersed a lot uh, across the whole globe. This, man, this, this made this, uh, many Portuguese really knowledgeable about local, uh, local conditions, local languages. They interacted with uh, local populations. And uh, that's why uh, so many of them were later on employed uh, by Spanish authorities uh, to to work as a kind of uh, intermediaries, as go-betweens, and uh, and they were they, they had a lot of information. They did they, they 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 did. How did the Portuguese crown feel about this? Do you think that there were so many Portuguese working for the Spanish in the 16th century? Were they willing or able to prevent it? There there were uh, a few occasions in which they tried to prevent it. Uh, just think of the case of uh, Magellan uh, and uh, the famous Portuguese. Uh, there are a few other examples, but at a certain point, uh, they realized that it was not uh, feasible to prevent these people from going to to, to Spain. Uh, some of some Portuguese, they, they, they even went to England. Uh, it's, it's known that a few of them they were employed by 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 the the, the English authorities to uh, to to help them uh, organize in a better way expeditions and incursions in the northern Atlantic area. So it's um, 
it's a, a more or less general phenomenon, and and, and uh, I, I think Portuguese authorities, in some moments, they did try to prevent it from happening, but uh, uh, they were not. They did not succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, now, in spite of the imperial competition between the kingdoms and the complex relationship, um, is there any sense that the idea of Hispania persisted in the imagination in the 16th century? That is that the Iberian kingdoms were inextricably linked uh, culturally, socially, and so on, and would be inevit inevitably uh, reunited under one ruler. Did that persist beyond uh, Manuel's dream? It did persist, uh, but again, coexisting with uh, a stronger sense of the specificity, the specific character of each one of the polities. And Portugal, again, is a, an excellent example of this ambiguous situation. Uh, Portugal became the head, this very tiny, this very small uh, piece of land in the Iberian Peninsula became the head of a huge uh, overseas empire. And this contributed to, to the Portuguese feel very proud about their feats, about what they've, what they've done uh, in, in, in Asia, mostly, but also in the Atlantic area. And uh, this, of course, gave a sense of pride to Portugal, like saying, well, we were able to build an empire by ourselves. This was a very strong uh, uh, feeling that you that you find among the Portuguese elite in the mid 16th century, and uh, uh, this strong sense of, of proudness of, of what the Portuguese managed to achieve in overseas lands, of course, was very frequently linked to rivalry with Spain. Uh, Spain was the closest rival, and this, this sense of competition was like, was uh, always present. And so it's not a surprise, it's not a coincidence that in many moments uh, uh, the Portuguese not only expressed this sense of, of pride of being the head of a huge uh, uh, imperial, imperial organization, but they also competed with the Spaniards, uh, uh, at least uh, in in a rhetorical way. And let me give you an example of what I'm saying, like comparing the achievements of the Portuguese with the achievements of the Spaniards. And so that was also a matter of reputation, was saying, well, the Portuguese were able to conquer more kingdoms and territories than the Spaniards, or the other way around. And as a matter of fact, by the mid 16th century, chroniclers and historians from both polities kind of uh, engaged in a competition, writing histories of, of the overseas conquests of Spain and uh, of Portugal, in which they tried to demonstrate that that uh, each one of the of the kingdoms was able to conquer more than the neighbor. You see what I mean? And so um, this kind of a uh, uh, competition, of course had the effect of strengthening um, uh, the specific character of the Portuguese national, uh, the, uh, national identity, so to say. Uh, so the Portuguese, by stressing how important their achievements uh, were, with what they were saying was, uh, we are not the same as the Castilians. We are. We have our own empire. We have our own specific history. Part of it made up of uh, fighting against the Spaniards. So, throughout the 16th century, you have this um, uh, historical account, so to say, of the Portuguese past. 
insisting on the specific character of the Portuguese history, uh, of uh, the glories, the overseas glories of the Portuguese, and also the fighting against Castile. But simultaneous to it, you have also uh, the recognition of the similarities and of the, 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 the close ties the Portuguese had with the rest of the Hispanians. So again, it's a kind of a ambivalent situation. You have uh, statements of specificity of Portugal and even an anti-Castilian, anti-Spanish feelings coexisting with a never stronger sense of being part of Hispania, now more and more connected with the Catholic project that I mentioned before. So the fact that uh, from the mid 16th century onwards, both Spain and Portugal are more and more involved in the defense of the Catholic world against the two major threats, the Muslims and also the Protestants. This fact made uh, the Portuguese kings and the Spanish kings particularly aware of, of the fact that their, their uh, identity was very much connected with the fact that they were both um, very intensely Catholics. Uh, and, and so this, of course, also made them feel closer. We are part of the same fighting. We, are, we have the same enemy. We are, uh, we are engaged in, 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 in imperial, uh, imperial initiatives that uh, have some aspects uh, that are conflictive, but uh, we have managed to establish the kind of a, a kind of a coexistence that has proven to be uh, fruitful. So uh, I'm not saying that rivalry disappeared from the mid 16th century onwards, but uh, um, in face of the uh, increasing number of threats coming from Northern Europe uh, and, and also the fact that coexistence between uh, Spain and Portugal in overseas lands proved to be not so difficult to achieve. This, uh, I think, made the Portuguese give less importance to rivalry and welcome, welcome more and more um, this idea that uh, uh, the Spanish monarchy and Portugal were on the same side of the fighting. So instead of continuing uh, to, to compete, they should join forces. Luis de Camões, uh, the great Portuguese poet, um, he regarded the peoples of Portugal and Spain as Spaniards, now, not in a political or a national sense, but in the sense that both belonged to the, this historical entity of Hispania. Was this a common notion among 16th century Iberian writers and intellectuals, or was Camões uh, an outlier in this regard? It was very common. I think Camões is, a, uh, is a, the perfect illustration of uh, what you could find in the Portuguese, uh, so to say, literary milieu of the second half of the 16th century. It was... Uh, he was perfectly aware of what was going on in Castile and Aragon in literary terms. Uh, his literary culture, just like his uh, other other Portuguese men of letters of his generation, was very closely connected with with the Spanish uh, uh, literary milieu of that period, which was, by the way, booming and, and flourishing. So, 
what the Portuguese uh, men of letters saw in Castile and Aragon uh, during this period was a world that was very rich in cultural terms and artistic terms. And of course, they felt very attracted to to this to this uh, very rich and 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 and, and, and diversified literary and artistic world. But at the same time, Camões uh, was totally committed to an idea of uh, uh, an independent Portugal and a Portugal and, and a country that and a people that had a specific history or more precisely a royal house that had a specific history, which was in many respects the result of the fighting against the Castilians, against the Spaniards. So. That is precis precisely why his major work, the the epic, the famous epic poem, the 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 Lusiades, the the Os Lusiades in Portuguese, uh, includes so many passages devoted to historical events uh, of a uh, uh, fighting uh, between the Portuguese and the Spaniards, the Castilians. So uh, Camões' work, uh, Camões' uh, uh, epic poem is uh, full of references uh, of fighting between the Portuguese and the Castilians. But at the same time, Camões was an admirer of many Port uh, Spanish writers. He was very much connected with the Spanish literary milieu. So it seems that to a, cert a certain extent, the fact that he, uh, he includes so many references to fighting against the Portuguese and the Castilians uh, throughout the Middle Ages, is a way also of uh, praising the royal house uh, of Portugal, which was, by the way, uh, the entity that that uh, he wanted to 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 praise and to to get some advantage of it. So he was a courtly poet. He was uh, he was uh, part of the patronage of of King Sebastian, and so you have to read uh, his poem also from this point of view. His standpoint was. I'm a man of letters who want to benefit, wants to to benefit from the patronage of King Sebastian of Portugal. So let's let's praise the the feats and the the the, the historical trajectory of Portugal, concentrating on the victories achieved by the Portuguese kings against the, the Spaniards, but most important, more importantly, against the Muslims. So. Uh, Again, uh, Camões also stresses a lot the fighting against the Muslims as one of the, the 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 major, the most important identity markers of the Portuguese uh, of the Portuguese uh, history. But again, uh, uh, do allow me to insist on this uh, ambivalence because Camões' poem, uh, when it was um, known in Spain, and uh, do remind that it was almost immediately translated it to, into Spanish. As a matter of fact, two translations of, of, of the Lusias uh, appeared during the 1580s. And um, this poem was regarded uh, by Spanish readers as a, as, a, as, a, as a wonderful literary achievement, because Camões was a really skillful writer. And, um, and Camões ended up being considered one of the best Hispanic men of letters. So, in the turn of the century and during the early decades of the 17th century, 
Camões, when it came to identify the best Hispanic writers of all time, Camões was always there. So in some literary academies in Seville or in Madrid during the first half of the 17th century, Camões was uh, enthusiastically read by members of those academies and praised and uh, regarded as one of the best examples of the literary excellence of the uh, of the uh, Iberians, of the people from this Hispanic world. Uh, and um, what is even more interesting is that uh, even the passages uh, of the of of the poem of Camões, where he stresses the fighting be between the Portuguese and the Castilians, they were not regarded as as a demonstration of Portuguese hostility regarding the Spaniards. They were regarded as events that were part of the of the history of each one of the Iberian polities. And so, I think people did not uh, uh, give too much importance to those passages. They emphasize other aspects of, uh, of, of Camões' work, like uh, how he portrayed in a glorious way the fighting against the Muslims, uh, so, so that uh, Camões was regarded as a writer who also contributed to emphasize this very important role played the, the, the ensemble of the Iberians in protecting Christianity and fighting the Muslims. So it was one more poet who emphasized that uh, important task performed by the Iberians uh, in protecting Catholicism against, against the, 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 the Muslims. So it's interesting. The reception of Camões is a, is a very interesting topic uh, because it shows how uh, a poem that contains several anti anti Spanish uh, uh, statements and episodes um, ends up being becoming uh, 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 a masterpiece uh, and and uh, a major work uh, constantly praised by the Spanish public. Um, so, fifteen eighteen, the kingdoms, of course, were united under Philip II of Spain. Um, how did this come about? Um, well, it was um, a typical succession crisis, like so many others that took place in 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 across Western Europe uh, uh, by that very same time. Um, on that occasion, what what uh, made matters more complicated was the fact that uh, in 1578, uh, the King of Portugal, a man, a young man called Sebastian decided to, 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 to go to Northern Africa, to, to, to the lands of nowadays Morocco, to lead a military expedition. And uh, he was killed in a battle. He had no uh, direct successors. And so there was a, a succession crisis and uh, several dignitaries and princes, uh, they, 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 they presented their claims to, to the Portuguese throne and they eventually fought for the Portuguese crown. So there was a kind of a competition between several candidates and the one who ended up uh, winning that uh, contest was uh, the King of Spain, Philip II. And as a result of that, uh, Portugal uh, was incorporated by the Spanish monarchy and became one more territory 
of the conglomerate, the vast conglomerate of lands that Philip II uh, possessed in 1580. And F Philip was able to claim through his mother, is that correct? Exactly. So uh, a while ago, we've talked about intermarriage policies. So one of the outcomes of these intermarriage policies was the fact that at, uh, when, when some succession crisis came up, literally all uh, royal houses of the Iberian Peninsula could claim some rights to the throne because uh, they were so closely related to each other that there was always some relative in Aragon, in Catalonia, in Castile, or in Valencia. So um, these this, uh, this, uh, uh, claims made by Philip II were uh, the perfect example of the, of the, the outcomes, one of the potential outcomes of, of this uh, intermarriage uh, practices that uh, that uh, that began in the the early Middle Ages and and persisted throughout the early modern period. So Portugal became part of the Spanish monarchy, and 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 the interesting aspect is that um, uh, right from the beginning, um, Philip II and his uh, major counselors, advisors, they um, immediately recognized that Portugal, although it was going to become one more land, should be treated in a different way compared to other uh, territories that were, that were already part of the Spanish monarchy. So as uh, the, the Spanish historian Fernando Boza Alvarez, perhaps, uh, or certainly the best expert in this topic, uh, uh, as demonstrated, Philip II immediately um, uh, demonstrated that uh, he was going to deal with the Portuguese and with the Portuguese uh, uh, elites in a way that kind of recognized that he was uh, uh, he was um, he was uh, negotiating and uh, and and acknowledging that he could not compare Portugal to Valencia or to Catalonia or the Kingdom of Naples in Sicily or Flanders in Northern Europe. So Portugal was different. And, and Philip II demonstrated that sense uh, right from the beginning of this process of the Portuguese, uh, uh, the, 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 the Portuguese becoming uh, uh, one more part of the huge, of the vast Spanish monarchy. Uh, Portugal was different, yeah, the universal monarchy. Portugal was different, and and uh, authorities of the Spanish monarchy they 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 clearly demonstrated that because um, in 1581, so right after Portugal becoming uh, uh, one more land of 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 of, of Philip II's monarchy, um, Spanish authorities declared that they were going to respect. Uh, a set of conditions when dealing with Portuguese affairs. Um, for instance, um, Philip II agreed in creating a Council of Portugal at the Court of Madrid, uh, an organ that was due to become the symbol of the Portuguese royal status within the, the, the Spanish conglomerate. Uh, the king also promised that Portugal would always be governed by a viceroy who would be a member of the royal family, 
um, as for Portuguese government administrative institutions, the king, Philip II, also promised that only Portuguese-born dignitaries would be appointed to these institutions, and uh, and the similar commitment was established regarding the granting of Portuguese noble titles and ecclesiastical offices. Um, and in addition to that, uh, Philip also gave all guarantees to the nobility, to the Portuguese nobility and clergy regarding the preservation of their sphere of influence. So this, he said, uh, you don't have to worry about Portuguese being uh, kind of uh, invaded by uh, uh, people from other parts of the Spanish monarchy and take possession of, of your lands or your noble titles or your office. They were exclusively be reserved for Portuguese-born Portuguese people or Portuguese residents, what was by that time classified as Portuguese naturals, uh, someone natural from Portugal, which could include not just people born in Portugal, but also people living in Port Portugal for uh, a long period. Also very important in terms of these conditions that regulated the way Portuguese joined the Spanish monarchy was the fact that Philip also made a decision to keep the separation between the Portuguese and the Castilian overseas possessions. So in spite of the fact that both polities were now governed by the same king, Philip II, uh, the demarcation between the two overseas empires continued to be in place which meant that in, in, in official terms, no Portuguese was allowed to, to, to settle down in Spanish America and no Castilian or Valencian or Catalonian or Napolitan was allowed to, to settle down in Goa or in Salvador de Bahia in, in Brazil. So um, what can we conclude of this set of conditions that were accepted, explicitly accepted by King uh, Philip II, we can conclude that Portugal succeeded. The Portuguese elites who negotiated with representatives of Philip II, they succeeded in um, creating a, a kind of a separated sphere of influence that belonged to Portuguese-born and Portuguese residents. So compared to other territories of the Spanish monarchy, the Portuguese one was uh, uh, was more demarcated and uh, more uh, closed to outside interference. So this this means that for for instance, for someone coming from from Valencia or from Barcelona or from Madrid or from Naples to get possession of a Portuguese noble title or uh, or be employed in a Portuguese institution was literally impossible or almost impossible and uh, and, and this of course was was a, a big achievement for portugal because compared to the other lands the portuguese re were really the portuguese elites who negotiated this agreement this deal were uh, clearly very successful what kind of effect did iberian union have on portuguese identity or nationalism and what ultimately led to the end of the Union in 1640? It's a very good question. Uh, the, the, the Portuguese uh, population um, can be said had kind of uh, mixed feelings about this 
this new situation of being part of a vast conglomerate of territories. On the one hand, they, they of course, uh, uh, resented the fact that they lost independence, clearly, that they were, not, they were, that they were now controlled by kind of an uh, ancient rival, uh, Castile and the, and the, the, the ensemble of, of, of the Spanish territories. And uh, also the fact that from 1583 onwards, that is to say the moment when King Philip II got back to Madrid, uh, Portugal was no longer the stage for uh, a royal court. So just like it happened in Scotland after Union of the Crowns, uh, Portugal uh, became a territory, a royal territory without a king living on a permanent basis inside its, its, its territory. And this um, ended up having an effect, a political effect, because made Portugal kind of a more and more peripheral regarding the major issues of government uh, in um, in uh, the Spanish monarchy. So a sense of of uh, uh, of, 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 the, of Portugal being uh, losing some political weight was felt uh, throughout the the six decades uh, of uh, Iberian Union, Portugal becoming less and less relevant in political terms. Uh, and, and this fact associated with, um, uh, with, uh, with uh, measures made by, by and taken by the, the Spanish authorities uh, aiming at restricting the autonomy uh, achieved by Portugal in the initial stages uh, of the uh, Iberian Union also contributed to generate political and social tension inside Portugal. So, um, in spite of the fact that, as I said before, the Portuguese elites were very successful in negotiating a, a good deal uh, in terms of Portuguese membership of the Spanish monarchy, all these um, conditions that were agreed by Philip II did not prevent. Uh, Portugal from suffering a, 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 a more and more intense interference from Madrid and from Spanish authorities. So, um, in spite of all those conditions, what you end up finding throughout this period is a, is a, a growing presence of Spanish officials dealing with Portuguese affairs. You have Spanish troops inside uh, Portuguese uh, territories. And uh, perhaps even more important, uh, you have uh, an increasing tax burden uh, over Portugal, not just over Portugal, uh, over the ensemble of the, of the territories of the Spanish monarchy. But uh, in the case of Portugal, that, ta that tax burden was felt as um, an indication that Spain was no longer respecting the royal status of Portugal. Uh, and, and so the social unrest that took place in Portugal, in particular from the second and third decade of the 17th century onwards, uh, caused by poverty, by by fiscal measures, by uh, by by uh, uh, the the, re the reforms implemented by Philip III's and Philip IV's uh, uh, Ford ministers. Um, the, the social and political unrest that took place uh, did play a role, a role in um, making relations between Lisbon authorities and uh, uh, 
uh, and, and authorities in Madrid more and more tense. Um, on the whole, it can be said that some sections of the Portuguese elites fear that Portuguese and Portugal would eventually disappear inside the Spanish monarchy. That is to say that uh, one of the potential outcomes of, of uh, the, the reform measures taken by Philip III and Philip IV would be converting Portugal uh, into a province. So Portugal would lose its royal status and become a province which means that all the conditions that had been agreed by Philip II in the initial moments of his uh, rule in Portugal would simply put aside. And, and so there is this constant fear of Portugal becoming uh, like, like uh, uh, an irre irre irrelevant stakeholder inside the Spanish monarchy. And uh, also the fear that Portuguese lands, Portuguese uh, noble titles and uh, Portuguese institutions would be occupied by vassals of the Habsburgs coming from different territories. So this fear of a certain disappearance of Portugal um, ended up contributing to uh, the, the strengthening of some specific aspects of the Portuguese identity. So uh, paradoxically enough, it was during the Union of the, uh, the it was during the Iberian Union that many Portuguese ended up uh, producing historical accounts and also juridical treatises and all kinds of works in which they more clearly define uh, what was there so specific that defined the Portuguese. So it was precisely at the moment when Portugal was part of the Spanish monarchy that more and more Portuguese intellectuals, jurists, and men of letters started to kind of organize uh, uh, the picture of Portugal as a specific uh, uh, entity inside the Iberian Peninsula. Um, it is interesting to see that some of those accounts that uh, underline the specific character of Portugal, uh, I'm talking about juridical treatises, literary works, uh, history book, chronicles, so and so on and so forth. So uh, they were all published during the, the period of, of, of the Spanish rule in Portugal, uh, but uh, they were not necessarily anti-Spanish. They were mostly committed to underline the specific character of Portugal. It was as if they were saying, listen, they were saying, the authorities of Madrid, listen, you have to deal with the Portuguese in a different way because they are different. You should not deal with the Portuguese as if they were uh, uh, another entity, another part, ordinary part of, of the Spanish monarchy. Portugal is part of the Spanish monarchy, no doubt about it, but it's important that you uh, respect its royal status, its uh, specificity, its empire, and not treat Portugal as a province. So it's, 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 it's very interesting to see that all these accounts, all these books, they, they successfully produced a more 
complete and detailed account about the specific character of Portugal. But um, simultaneously, they were not necessarily anti-Spanish. On the contrary, they often um, located that Portuguese specificity inside that uh, uh, idea of uh, Hispania, of which we've already talked about. So they said, well, um, Hispania as a cultural horizon is, uh, is, uh, is, 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 is a good uh, standpoint for uh, locating Portugal uh, and other peoples of the Iberian Peninsula. So um, Portuguese expressions of identity, specific identity produced during the period of the Union of the Crowns were not necessarily anti-Castilian or anti-Spanish, quite the contrary. In some cases, what they, they do is uh, totally, is completely the opposite. They stress the links uh, between Portugal and Hispania uh, by saying, listen, we are part of Hispania, we are part of the Hispanic world, but we have strong specificities. So mm, you should respect these specificities. So, uh, it's 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 like like producing um, uh, a specific identity of Portugal, not necessarily uh, opposed to the Spanish one. It was not a, 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 a sense of, uh, of belonging that was exclusive. It's a, it was open to the idea that you could belong to several ensembles uh, at the same time. Uh, so you could, being very intensely Port Portuguese was not necessarily uh, a synonym of being anti-Spanish, quite, quite the contrary. And when the end came in 1640, how did it happen? Well, um, the rebellion that took place in December of 1640 in Lisbon, and then uh, it was a kind of a coup d'etat that uh, subsequently... Uh, generated a, a kind of a major uh, revolt, not just in the Portuguese peninsular lands, but also across the Portuguese empire. This uh, coup d'etat that took place in, in December 1640 was the end result of a series of tensions uh, uh, related to some of the things I've already mentioned. Uh, the fact that uh, Fiscal measures were were uh, generating uh, social unrest and, and 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 even riots in parts of the country. Uh, the growing fear that Portugal was no longer being going to be respected uh, and recognized as a as a royal entity, and so the fear that people from all over the Spanish monarchy would come to Portugal and occupy its lands and. Uh, take possession of its uh, noble titles and ecclesiastical offices. Um, so many Portuguese feared that Portugal might be absorbed by the Spanish monarchy and kind of disappeared as a specific uh, specific unit. And, um, and, and uh, these uh, aspects, um, uh, these factors, uh, these elements of tension were intensified by uh, events taking place uh, 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 in a wider scale. Do bear in mind that from the 1620s onwards, um, the Dutch 
um, started to attack in a very fierce way the Portuguese territories in South America, then in Sub-Saharan Africa, and uh, subsequently also uh, across Asia. And this was a major setback for the Portuguese imperial strategy because the Dutch were very successful uh, in fighting the Portuguese. They conquered some of the major Portuguese territorial possessions in in South America, some outposts in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and, and, and also uh, many, many territories across Asia. So uh, the situation was catastrophic for the Portuguese in terms of imperial strategy. And, and this made many Portuguese uh, feel deeply disappointed with, uh, with the Spanish monarchy, because one of the reasons why they kind of welcomed the the uh, Iberian Union was the fact that they expected that the Spanish monarchy would protect in an effective way the Portuguese overseas territories. Uh, Philip II was uh, the, the, the ruler, uh, the most powerful ruler on earth. Uh, so at least it was, it was regarded like, like this by, by many Portuguese. And so the fact that the, the Spanish armies were not being able to protect in an effective way the Portuguese overseas lands, in particular uh, in, in, in Asia and also uh, South America, was uh, a, a, a bitter disappointment for, for many Portuguese. And, uh, and so the whole atmosphere was uh, favorable to, to uh, a kind of a riot, to a rebellion, to a coup d'etat, and to make things even worse for the Spaniards, um, there was a lot of uh, French interference inside Portugal. Do remind that Port uh, Spanish monarchy and France were at war since 1635. So um, French intelligence, so to say, was uh, promoting feelings of dissension and uh, rebellion in several parts of the Iberian Peninsula, like in Catalonia, where a, re a major rebellion was, was also raging uh, uh, in 1640. And the key moment for, for the rebellion was uh, the uh, conflict between um, the ruling elite uh, 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 in Portugal and uh, a, a, a series of officers uh, representing uh, Madrid authorities in Lisbon. Uh, uh, different courtly factions started to fight uh, with each other in Lisbon, and and uh, one of them uh, at a certain point declared that uh, it no longer wanted to 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 accept uh, Spanish orders, which were associated more and more with uh, Philip IV's favorite, uh, uh, the Count of Olivares, and so. Uh, this uh, opened uh, the door for a major, uh, well, first uh, a coup d'état and then a major rebellion, which took place in, in from from early December 1640 onwards. Which led to the Portuguese restoration more and the eventual independence of uh, Portugal from Spain. After Portuguese independence from let's say, 1668, after the Portuguese restoration war, that is, how has the idea of Hispania fared? Um, did the independence movement change it irrevocably? It, it did change, although it was a, a complex process because do, do take into account that um, 
throughout the six decades of Iberian Union, many Portuguese got deeply involved in Spanish affairs, in the affairs of the Spanish monarchy. A great deal of the Portuguese high nobility was involved in different uh, institutions, uh, so serving the Spanish monarchy. Many uh, merchants uh, from Portugal, they were benefiting a lot from the Iberian Union. A lot of Portuguese were living across Spanish America. So uh, the integration, in spite of the fact that in 1581, authorities decided that there should be no confusion between the two uh, territorial units, the Portuguese and the Spanish one, both in the peninsula and also in overseas. The fact is that is in practical terms, integration was taking place. And, and so at a certain point when authorities in Lisbon declare independence and say, well, let's cut all these ties. This was a painful process for a lot of people and, uh, and, uh, and uh, not an easy one for many dignitaries, many noblemen, many clergymen, many merchants who had spent the, 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 the decades before the, the, the split from the Spanish monarchy working for the Spanish monarchy or very well integrated in the, the several millions of the Spanish monarchy. So um, uh, the, 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 the independence, the restoration of the, of the independence of Portugal in 1640 um, generated a, a, a complicated process of, uh, of, uh, of uh, separation complicated for many families, for many businessmen, for many uh, merchants, for families, uh, intermarriage uh, also continued during the Iberian Union. So it's, uh, it's, um, it's uh, something that, that also contributed to integration between Portugal and the other territories of the Spanish monarchy. But of course, uh, the war that took place after uh, the Declaration of Independence in 1640, so a long war of almost three decades, played a role in um, shaping political allegiance and building a kind of a, a two-sized conflict, you know. Uh, so um, the war, uh, which um, kind of devastated many areas along the Portuguese-Spanish border, uh, together with a very intense propaganda with lots of uh, anti-Castilian and anti-Portuguese overtones. Uh, these two factors contributed to, uh, uh, to make this idea of belonging to the same uh, political horizon as uh, something not so, so present in, in, in Portugal. So um, not surprisingly, during the war, you don't see many people in Portugal saying, well, Portugal is part of, 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 of Hispania, of the Hispanic world. Of course not. People, uh, people were committed to the independence cause, so royal propaganda insists uh, precisely on the opposite idea, the, the idea that the history of Portugal was uh, a sequence of fightings against the Castilians, and so uh, a strong anti-Castilian uh, feeling developed as a result of this, uh, of this propaganda uh, effort. Of course, there was also anti-Castilian feelings uh, among the lower groups. Uh, recent research shows that 
throughout the decades of 1620s and 1630s in borderland areas. And there's the fiscal pressure coming from, a D, from Madrid intensified, you know, more uh, frequent uh, anti-Castilian statements could be heard in, in, in borderland areas. But uh, it's clear that the war, the joint effect of the war and the uh, propaganda, uh, the royal propaganda in Portugal, disseminating lots of uh, uh, texts and images with a clear anti-Castilian tone, uh, played a role in making that idea of Portugal belonging to Hispanic, uh, to the Hispanic world or to Hispania uh, uh, much less present than, than, than it was before. So the war did play a role and the same can be said about propaganda. Um, and finally, does, uh, do you think the idea of Hispania still exists today? Is it still a romantic notion of a great reunion? I wouldn't say so. Um, I would answer to your question first saying that um, after after the peace treaty of uh, uh, the, of sixty sixty eight that put an end to to the war between the Spanish monarchy and Portugal, in the decades that followed, or more precisely in the, the in the centuries that followed, in some occasions uh, you can find people um, voicing this um, this uh, idea that we, we that the Portuguese and the, and the Spanish should join forces again and, uh, and 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 restore that Iberian Union um, in different contexts and and not just in Portugal but also in Spain. You 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 come across um, people voicing these these uh, these ideas. Uh, you you also come across people in Spain talking about uh, projects of uh, reconquering Portugal, like saying, "Well, we lost Portugal in 1640, so we should uh, we should uh, reconquer because that territory is ours." So. You, you, you find that idea from time to time in, in the writings of some Spanish politicians and, and statesmen uh, during the 18th century and 19th century. But at the same time, you also find people both in Spain and Portugal um, expressing uh, uh, views of a possible Iberian Union, not uh, based on the Spanish conquest of, of, of Portugal, but on uh, on joining forces uh, and establishing a union based on an idea of a composite monarchy or a, a federal monarchy, I don't know, a federal republic. There are different expressions of this idea of a, of a new uh, Iberian Union throughout uh, history and throughout the centuries after uh, 1668. And, uh, Portugal was clearly not a passive uh, uh, player in in that process because uh, uh, you 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 find people a significant number of Portuguese expressing positive views about uh, the possibility of Portugal and Spain joining forces again. Uh, let me give an example. By the time of the of the war of the Spanish succession, so the early years of the 18th century, the King of Portugal, Pedro II, Peter II, 
he was one of the of the candidates, so to say, to the Spanish throne. So uh, the king of Portugal um, by that time was uh, was uh, well expressing um, some hope that uh, the war could uh, could result in Portugal and Spain becoming once again one sole monarchy. So one of the things I, I, I find important to stress is that. Uh, the idea that Portugal was uh, always not interesting in joining forces with other Iberian polities uh, must be uh, reconsidered uh, because you, you get many examples of uh, all kinds of Portuguese, uh, mostly coming from the elite groups and including members of the royal family, saying, well, uh, uh, we should we should join forces in uh, in in the Iberian world. So instead of saying, well, Portugal uh, was always more interested in overseas expansion than in joining forces with another Iberian polity, I would say that we sh you should see the two uh, these two uh, stages at the same time and interacting with each other, not uh, as a separated account or a separated part of the history. You should take them together. Professor Pedro Cardin, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. It was a pleasure.